0: Today's sermon is Kingdom Seekers or Kingdom Dwellers. It's taken from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. We remember our mothers on this day. So many are gone, but still remembered, dear to us. Would you bow with me and let us ask God to direct us in our thinking this morning as we work our way through the book of Matthew. Matthew. Father, we are so glad to be here this morning with like-minded people. Help us, Father, to, as your children, to understand your truths for our lives. Help us desire to be your disciples, to draw close to you, to follow you, and to live for you. May this sermon be a step in that direction of becoming what you would have us be. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. What is an oxymoron? Well, an oxymoron is defined by the dictionary as a figure of speech in which an apparently contradictory, apparent contradictory words appear in conjunction with one another when they should not be linked together. A few examples of oxymorons would be Jumbo Shrimp, Hell's Angels, Only Choice, Wicked Good, Living Dead, Army Intelligence, Pretty Ugly, and my favorite, Short Sermon. Oxymorons are found in everyday speech and in the Bible as well. Jesus often employed figures of speech like oxymorons when he spoke. We might be a bit perplexed by his usage, however, of oxymorons, uh, especially in the study of this portion of the book of Matthew today. As you know, chapter 5 through 7 are known as the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, um, Jesus uses oxymorons. So we must consider that as we study it. Now, as preachers do study the Sermon on the Mount, (coughs) it is considered by most to be the greatest sermon ever delivered. I'd like to set the stage for our study of it by giving you the context, once again, of the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. Matthew was writing to his Jewish brethren who were under the paradigm of the law of Moses. He wrote to them around 50 to 60 A.D., and he wrote this book in cooperation with the Apostle Peter, who was martyred in Rome in or about 63, 64 A.D. Many of Matthew's Jewish brethren had not even heard of Jesus, or if they had, they had rejected him outright. One thing we do know specifically is that Matthew was not writing to the church. Why not? Well, the church was not revealed as an entity until about ten years later by Paul in his writing to the Ephesians. Matthew was writing to his Jewish brethren about the Messiah, the king whom Israel expected, saying that he had come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you'll recall in our studies in the past few weeks that in chapter 1, Matthew presented the royal genealogy of Jesus to the Jews. In chapter 2, he presented the royal birth of Jesus as the king. And in chapter 3, he showed the divine approval of the Father and the Holy Spirit on Jesus as the king. In chapter 4, Matthew showed the testing of the divine character of the king. And finally, last week, we looked at the royal coming-out party, if you will, of the king. In this text, in the book of Matthew, we've seen that John the Baptist came announcing the coming of the king and preparing the way for him for the nation of Israel. Jesus then presents himself to the Jewish nation as the fulfillment of John's announcement. He is... The promised Messiah king who will usher in his kingdom if he is received by the Jewish people. Well, all of that makes me wonder why Matthew chose to insert the Sermon on the Mount at this place in his gospel. Because we know that the Sermon on the Mount probably took place much later in his ministry. So, so for, for whatever reason, Matthew pushes it to the front of his book. Now some have called this the Savior's Manifesto, the Constitution of Christianity, or at least for the coming kingdom. I see it more as a statement of the ethical principles that will be in the Messiah's Millennial Kingdom. Those principles are active, however, for all of those who are kingdom people. These principles are always embedded in all of Jesus' teaching, and we see that especially true as they are highlighted, or juxtaposed, if you will, against the teaching of the Pharisees. They, of course, reject his ethical principles. They reject his Kingdom offer they reject him, and they lead the people of Israel to do so as well. So these these spiritual principles taught by Jesus are highlighted against the hype, the hypocritical practices of the Pharisees. Donald Trump would call their teaching fake righteousness. Let us be clear about this. The sermon of Jesus is not presenting some new way of salvation for the sheep, the lost sheep of Israel. Salvation is always the same in every age and every dispensation. People are saved or believe in God based on the promises that he makes to them. Salvation is always by faith alone in Christ alone. It's simply the amount of information is different in different dispensations. Before Jesus came at Bethlehem, his incarnation, the Jews looked forward to the coming Messiah, the promise of the Messiah. But the deliverer that they had in mind was not what appeared at Bethlehem. They were looking for a political king, one who would free them from the domination of the Romans. Many Reformed scholars interpret the Sermon on the Mount as a guide. To salvation. They see good works as bringing in salvation to them. But this is wrong. Why? Because it conflicts with the rest of Scripture. The clear teaching of Scripture. Salvation is always based on faith and not on good works. We can go all the way back to the book of Genesis in chapter 15 and verse 6 and read that the first Jew who ever believed in God... It was a credit to him for his, his belief for righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was a credit to him as righteousness. There you go. All people of every age are accepted by God by their belief and trust in his promises concerning the Messiah. Jesus now shares this sermon with his disciples. They had already believed on him as the promised one of Israel. They saw him as the fulfillment of the promise of a coming Messiah. So the Sermon on the Mount is not teaching salvation through human effort, which the, liber- the liberals say. It is, that is to overestimate, I believe, the ability of men, and worse, to underestimate man's total depravity. Jesus presents these spiritual principles to those who believe in him as the Messiah, as the correct manner of living in his kingdom. Such a response to his principles, of course, began with a response to either John's presentation and offer of a coming Messiah, or to Jesus' life in which he demonstrates he is the Messiah. So we should understand this sermon in light of Jesus' offer to bring in the kingdom. To bring in the kingdom. However, timeless principles contained within this sermon are always relevant to disciples of every age. So this standard of righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount is the one that is demanded by God of his people. Some of these standards are general in nature. For example, one cannot serve both God and God and money. That is a principle that crosses all lines of days and ages. One cannot sink and float at the same time. Some principles, however, are very more specific to a specific time period. For example, Jesus said in this sermon, if someone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. For at that time, Roman soldiers had the right to force a Jew to pick up their pack and carry it for one mile only, but Jesus says, show grace and do it for two miles. Other principles are purely in the future that Jesus articulates in this sermon. For example, many will say to me on that day, future day, Lord, Lord, we did not prophesy in your name. Jesus obviously was speaking of the excuses that will be given to him on the day of judgment. So, what is important about this sermon is that Jesus is dealing with the inner state of the believer rather than that which the Pharisees focused on and which of course is the outer man, the outer man's ability to obey Rules and regulations made up by men. So these are guiding principles for you and me today as disciples. These are guiding principles for the people that listen to Jesus, and they are guiding principles in his kingdom. So, if you would, let us begin our study of the Sermon on the Mount. And let me begin with a note of warning Jesus shared this material on many occasions. Do not believe that this was a one time occurrence. Luke records another time in which the information, much of it the same, but much of it is different because it was given on a different occasion. These principles are always the same and Jesus articulated them again and again. They tell us as believers how we can become good citizens of his kingdom. Jesus is sharing with them these spiritual truths that are to be assimilated by all Believers of every age. So the expectation is that we will adopt these principles as our own. In Matthew chapter 5, we begin with verse 1. You can find this text, if you need to use the Pew Bible, on page 970. Let's begin our examination of the Beatitudes, or as it's called by many, the Beatitudes. I like to think of them as the B attitudes. Now, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So here we have the setting of the sermon on the mount. Jesus is like no other preacher that I know of. He didn't want to be with the crowds. You know, the very first question I'm often asked when I get together with other preachers at conferences is, how big is your church? But Jesus didn't care about crowds. He cared about those who were following him and listening to him. We learn here that when Jesus saw the crowd, he beat feet up a mountain. Now, as you know, I have a bum knee. It's hard for me to walk on flat surfaces, let alone to go up steep inclines. And I think about mothers with children in tow. Or how about the older folks? How about the lazy ones? All of this would have eliminated people from the crowd in following Jesus up the mountain. So he's seeking a place to be alone. He's not seeking to speak to the crowds. So when we see those films behind us, we often have the idea that Jesus is speaking to a great crowd that is assembled and waiting for him to come out from behind the curtain. Not so. Jesus' audience is really important to see here to understand this text clearly. He has slipped away from the people to a place that is quiet and that he can be by himself. He's at a place on a hill, a slope that looks down on Capernaum in the Sea of Galilee, Now, we're not exactly sure of the location, even though they have built a church there on the place, the Mount of Beatitudes. We don't know if that's exactly the place. But we do know that when Jesus sat down, as the text says, that he's taking the place of a a Jewish teacher. A uh, master teacher in this society would always sit down to teach. We stand up here, don't we? But there they sat down. That's when... His disciples, according to the text, come to him. His disciples came to him. Now, Jesus looks his disciples directly in the eye as he begins to deliver the Sermon on the Mount. But which disciples? Was it the Twelve only? Well, it doesn't tell us, does it? The text says only that his disciples came. A former professor of mine at Dallas Seminary, Stanley Toussaint. How do you like that name? You know, Would you like to be a Toussaint? Or a Bible, I had a professor whose name was Bible once. You know Toussaint, what a great name! I had another professor named Pentecost. <laughs> you know you can't you can't make this stuff up. Anyway, Stanley Toussaint said in his book, written on the Book of Matthew, and specifically on this sermon, that he that Jesus was dis, was exhorting his disciples to a life of genuine discipleship, and that. Um, He was concerned with hypocrisy and unbelief. They are enjoined by this sermon to enter into the narrow gate and to walk the narrow way. And this is included in the discourse, says Toussaint, but it is only a secondary application of the sermon. Jesus is teaching his basic 12 disciples, and maybe there's a few others gathered within there, these life-changing principles. And in verse 2, we read, and I love this, he opened his mouth. Isn't that great? And he began to teach to them, saying, here we have the great teacher, the master teacher, he opens his mouth to teach. Does, what does that tell us? Jesus was a real human being. He wasn't some ghost. He had a mouth. And he began to teach his disciples. Could, could Matthew have been any more descriptive? I don't think so. This tells us the disciples must be teachable rather than argumentative. Frankly, when I teach, I find many people today that come to my Bible studies are not teachable. They're argumentative. They've read the text one time, and therefore they think they know it all. But notice here that the disciples will sit, and they will not offer their commentary with Jesus about what he's teaching. They're listening. They're teachable. They don't think they know everything already. So, my advice to you is, oftentimes it's better to sit and listen than to interject your comments. Truth is, most believers are very immature. And what they want you to do as a Bible teacher or as a pastor is to validate what they already believe. But that's not the role of the teacher. That's not the role of Jesus. He challenges them, and any good teacher will do this, challenge you to think deeper about the core issues of your life. What do you really believe? That's what Jesus does here in this. He's challenging these people who are following, basically the 12 that he's called to be around him, about kingdom principles, and are they living these in their lives now? Let me ask you, are you a kingdom seeker, or are you a kingdom dweller? Do you think you're already in the kingdom, and you know everything, and that you're Old nature's been eradicated from you? Or are you a kingdom seeker? Do you still have the inquisitiveness that you did on the first day that you believed? Do you still have the desire to know Christ deeper? Are you a kingdom seeker? I know many a Christian who thinks they've got their ticket punched to heaven already. I'm good. I don't need to learn anything else. I'm just just living my life now, waiting for the day when I die and go into the Lord's presence. We are to be kingdom seekers. We are to be teachable. We are to be listeners to what God has to tell us through his word. Now, something that we need to understand about this sermon of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, is that his sermon is descriptive. That is, it is not prescriptive. The sermon presents ideally what the disciple should be becoming rather than what the disciple should do. It's about being rather than doing. Jesus' commentary on the outward obedience of believers is an outgrowth of what they have become inwardly. In that vein, he shares three spiritual qualities of the follower of himself at the beginning of the Beatitudes. And then he will share four spiritual qualities of service. So, as I said, these are the be attitudes, not the do attitudes. These are inner changes that the believer needs to make to become his full-born disciple and to experience the abundant life. Jesus begins with the ideal. Jesus begins with the ideal of inner character for his kingdom seeker. Disciples then are to internalize, assimilate, make these principles their own, and thus shape and change their character. Looking at verse 3, we see the first of these principles that Jesus shares, the ethical quality of a believer. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first beatitude here is not meant to be a pithy saying that you put on a plaque and post on your wall in your kitchen. No, these are not just cute catchphrases. These are life-changing truths to be implemented by any believer who wants to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Each of these begins with the word blessed. As you can see behind me, hopefully, there's a translation there of the Greek term Makarios, as you, as you see, it's not another Greek word that, uh, that Matthew could have used. He uses this word to translate, G, translate blessed, uh, which could have been translated a number of ways if he used the other Greek word, which we get our word eulogy from. This word is more nuanced. Markios implies that we are blessed, that we are happy, or that we are fortunate. So it could be translated, all eight of these, as happy are, or blessed are, or fortunate are, those who follow this prescription. So, the blessing of God is not circumstance-dependent, it is character-dependent. We find this stated in the Old Testament as well about believers. For example, in the Psalms, David writes in chapter 1, Blessed is the man, or happy is the man, or fortunate is the man, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but stands nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. And then later on in the same book he writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression, transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and who does not turn to the proud nor go astray. Blessed are those whose way is blameless and who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimony. So we see that this is not descriptive of a man's circumstances, but of his character. We're blessed because of what the Lord has done internally in our lives So as we look at each one of these Beatitudes, we should remember that we can interpret this as blessed, happy, or fortunate. Now each of the Beatitudes have three parts to it. The first is the acknowledgement that we are blessed, happy, or fortunate. The second part is a specific virtue that is to be cultivated inwardly in the disciple. Thirdly, there is a promise that is related to kingdom seekers as a reward or a comfort for cultivating this inner ethic. Inner happiness is what's being spoken of here and not outer circumstances. This, however, usually is looking forward to a fuller completion of the blessedness of the believer. Okay? The first one is being poor in spirit. Isn't that kind of an oxymoron? Wouldn't you rather be rich in spirit? These disciples are poor in spirit because they are depending upon God rather than themselves. It's the internal understanding that is opposite of the attitude in the world. The world is self-dependent. We want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we become proud and haughty about the things that we have done. But the disciple of Jesus possesses an inner attitude of humbleness that is based upon the grace of God. The disciple who is poor in spirit has come to the place where he acknowledges his sin and his depravity and his total dependence upon God's goodness and God's character. As I said, this is opposite of the attitude of the world, which is self sufficiency. Paul wrote about this to the Corinthians, saying, Not that we are sufficient in and of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God. There it is, porn spirit. The world promotes being the captain of your own ship, taking charge, being dominant, type A personalities. But the believer, who is becoming the disciple of Jesus Christ, is not self-dependent, but God-dependent. Yielded to the Lord and enjoys his happiness and his peace. The Lord wrote this through the prophet Isaiah. The one who is high and lifted up, whose name is holy, that is God, says... I dwell in high and holy places and also with him who is of a contrite, lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's poor in spirit. This is not fake humility either. This is true humility. This is a proper understanding of how sinful we really are. Now, as we look at the promises that are given in each of these blessings, each of these beatitudes, I'd like you to notice that there is a conjunction used, and it's translated in your English text as for. You can put up that slide if it's not up already. Hadi is the Greek word that is translated, as I said, as for, but it could be better translated as because. Uh, According to the Greek grammars, either one of those are acceptable. So if we translated it better as because, the first beatitude would read, blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This obviously speaks of possession. You're blessed because you possess the kingdom of heaven. And as you know, heaven is is an allocution, which is a word that stands for another. Jews didn't say God, so this is the kingdom of God. You are blessed if you are poor in spirit because you will possess the kingdom of God. Here is the king presenting the offer of the kingdom to those who are poor in spirit, saying, this is God. Your reward. Now, this is not a qualification for kingdom entrance. That's what a lot of preachers preach. In order to enter into salvation, you have to become poor in spirit. That's not what this text is saying. This text is saying because you know the Savior and because you are following him to the deeper life and because you have expressed poor in spirit rather than haughtiness and pride, the kingdom of God will be yours. Now, verse 4. The Lord shares the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Remember, Jesus is speaking to those Jews who already believe in him, his disciples, and all Jews had a lot to mourn about. What did they have to mourn about? Well, every Jew could remember the way things were. When David and Solomon ruled over the kingdom of Israel and it was the largest, greatest nation on the face of the earth, But because of the rebellion of God's people, because they rebelled against his covenants and against his law, they were sent into exile. Blessed are those who mourn or who recognize the sinfulness of the nation of Israel. And the promise here is because they will be comforted, for they will be comforted. Here we have a picture of who Jesus is as the king. Do you remember that from the Old Testament where he says he is the wonderful counselor? Here he's comforting them. The comforter is counseling them and comforting them. So we see this spoken of also in the book of Isaiah. Again, we return to the Old Testament where we see this same truth being expressed to the children of Israel. There in Isaiah chapter 61, we read Isaiah saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prisons of those who are bound, to proclaim this is the year of the Lord's favor and that the day of vengeance of our God is to comfort all who mourn. Jesus is presenting himself as the king and the nation has been mourning because they've been taken over by the Romans, they've been in bondage, they've been exiled, and here Jesus is to comfort those who are mourning over Israel. Isn't that awesome? The third beatitude, if you will, shared by Jesus with his disciples on the mount that day, is blessed are the gentle, because they shall inherit the earth. Now maybe your English text says meek. I think gentle is a much richer and deeper word and more appropriate uh, to the text. Meek bears the idea of a man being tame, compliant, unresisting, and even timid. I think it's better to think of the English term gentle, and according to the Greek dictionary, it can be translated as either. The disciple should possess this quality of gentleness, also expressed as kindness or sympathy or consideration or benevolence. There's a huge difference, however, I think, between gentleness and meekness. As you can see, the Greek word praus on the screen behind me, which some translations prefer to use, uh, I prefer gentleness because one of the fruit of the Spirit that disciples are to Exhibit is gentleness. Jesus exhibited gentleness in his, ho- in his own life. Jesus came as a lamb to be slaughtered. He came as a servant who did not open up his mouth. We are to share that quality that our Lord possessed. We are to be gentle in spirit. And the, promises here, the promise here is we will inherit the earth. For they shall inherit the earth because they shall inherit the earth. The promise here, now speaking to my Reformed Calvinistic brethren who think of a thousand year reign as mythical, that it's in the heart of the believer and that it's going on now, I say this speaks of a literal kingdom. It speaks of earth, not heart. This is a literal kingdom in which Jesus Christ will reign and rule over 4,000 years. We will be there with him, especially those disciples that have a gentleness of spirit. We will rule with him. These traits spoken of poor in spirit, mourning, gentleness are to be exhibited here and now by disciples in their life. And it will play a huge role in our service to the king when he reigns over the earth. David, in the Psalms, wrote of this in chapter 38. The psalmist said this, The humble will inherit the land, another word for earth, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. There it is. When the Lord Returns, sets up his kingdom, we will rule and reign with him. We will inherit the land and we will delight in our prosperity as our reward. Now, in verse 6, we have the next beatitude when Matthew writes, Blessed are those quoting Jesus, writes, Blessed are those who who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied, because they will be satisfied. You know, as you know, I've been on the Atkins diet for about four months. And to be honest, I'm kind of tired of cheese and eggs and, and meat. I'm hungering and thirsting for a Chicago hot dog and a chocolate shake. With all the trimmings. Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, maybe when I travel this June, I'll get one. One of the attitudes of a disciple is that they should... Hunger and thirst after righteousness. This speaks of the disciple's spiritual appetite. The truth is, few believers develop a consuming appetite for the Word of God. To most folks, studying the Bibles might be studying the Bible might be compared to eating root vegetables. You know, ugh, rhubarb, beets, turnips. No thanks. But the Bible is sweet honey to the lips of the believer who desires, who's thirsting, who's hungering after righteousness. The truth is most Christians just look at Christianity as a fire insurance plan against hell. But we as kingdom seekers, as those who want to be his disciples... Followers of the Lord Jesus Christ enjoying the abundant life must hunger and thirst over scriptural truth, over the word of God. We must subsist and live on the bread of his word. The growing disciple can think of hardly anything else other than God's word. To experience it, its richness, its depth in our life, and to fill that void that is there created by our sin nature the promise is for because we will be satisfied notice on the screen behind me that we have the word greek word koresale which implies a complete satisfaction as the psalmist david wrote in chapter 107 for he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he's filled it with what is good isn't that awesome god will Richly fill your life with good things. You will be satisfied. The Lord assures us of that. Now, the fifth beatitude Jesus speaks to his disciples about is in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is an easy one, isn't it? You and I know about mercy. God has expressed his mercy to us. He's spared you and me the pain of suffering for our sin. He's shown us mercy. That is, he's given us deliverance, which we do not deserve. We deserve punishment, don't we? But he's been merciful to us. And he continues to show us that mercy each and every day in our lives. What is mercy? It's forgiveness, it's compassion expressed to someone else. God has expressed his mercy and compassion to us by, by forgiving us. Now, we need to reciprocate and show that forgiveness and compassion to others. As disciples, we have a great privilege in imitating the Lord Jesus by showing others forgiveness and compassion. Now, I've been in the church for a long time. I've been a pastor for over 30 years. And to tell you the truth, you don't find a lot of mercy in the church. It's supposed to be reciprocal, but often it is not. The promise here is that those who are merciful shall obtain mercy. Your reward is heaven is based upon your activity here and now. Then and there is what you is will be reflected in here and now. How are you doing at this character trait in your life? Are you developing it? Are you merciful? Are you compassionate to others? Are you forgiving? Some have suggested that the judgment seat of Christ is in view here. The sixth beatitude found in this text is when Jesus tells his disciples, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart, what is that? Is that the disciple who is devoid of sinful motives? Was that even possible? Jeremiah tells us, uh, I'm sure you all know this, Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. How can we be pure in heart? I don't know about you, but I wrestle with evil thoughts all the time, don't you? Why did the Cubs lose again today? It's an evil thought. We will be wrestling with evil thoughts our whole lives until the Lord Jesus returns at the rapture or we die and he takes us home. Man's inner being. We have an evil, desperately wicked heart that hasn't been eradicated or changed. That only takes place when we go to glory. Until that time, we must deal with it as the Lord enables us through his Holy Spirit and empowers us through his word. Jesus tells us that evil emanates from the heart of man. Saved and unsaved. He said this, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and slanders. That about covers it, don't you think? Paul tells us that we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we are. And yet we're always giving ourselves a pass when it comes to our own sin, don't we? So how can we be pure in heart? Well, again, we look to the Greek text and we read that the kingdom seeker is purifying his heart continually. We sometimes make evil choices. We have evil thoughts. We choose not to draw near to God, but we stay far away from him, grieving the Holy Spirit. If we choose rightly and we choose to do the correct thing, we will see God according to the promise of this verse. What does that mean? I think it means that when the inner man is cleansed by God, he can see more clearly. The dirt and the grime of life must be cleansed from our hearts if we are to actually see what the Lord is doing in our lives. We must be continually practicing confession of sin to God to be cleansed in our lives. This is true even in the Old Testament. We read the words of Moses as he exhorted the Israelites, saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Does that describe you in your life today? Are you an abundant disciple looking for that life that's pure in heart? Or are you just going through the motions? Is Sunday morning it? Is that your bit of religion? Is that your dose of it? We need to be consciously thinking about this with a heart totally dedicated to the Lord and confessing our shortcomings if we are to have a pure heart. A singleness of purpose in this life rather than being divided between the world and the Lord. The pure heart seeks God at all times, desiring fellowship with him in his word and through the spirit. The pure in heart, the promises will see God. What does that mean? We'll see him at the rapture, right? We'll see him if we die and we enter into his presence. I think the promise here that they will see God means that he will be a greater reality to you in this life. You will see God working in and through you. But certainly, one day coming, we will see the Lord face to face. That's the promise. Now, the next beatitude is in verse 9. Jesus says to his disciples, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. The truth is you and I have been called to be peacemakers, not aggravators, not dividers, not get-my-own-weyers. weighers. we are called to be peacemakers. Does that describe you? are you an agitator? There's a lot of Christians who are agitators. We've been called to the the ministry of reconciliation, not to the ministry of I'm right and you're wrong. We've been called to take this ministry of reconciliation through evangelism, through living a, a pious life to others. Paul wrote about this when he wrote the Roman sayings. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It was to this end that Christ died and lived again that he might be both Lord of the living and of the dead. We're not to wait until we're dead. He wants you to live out that peacemaker life now while you're alive. As his disciples, we should be living differently than the world. We should be restoring broken relationships rather than aggravating them. A peacemaker is one who works for peace. For peace. Are you doing that? If not, why not? It might explain the discord that is in your life and in the relationships that you have, that you're not pursuing peace with all men. Now, the caveat to that is this. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to pursue peace at all costs. Peacemaking must be based on truth. Me, we must share with others how they too can know the peace of God. If you share the gospel with peace, some people, sometimes you're not going to get peace. You're going to get slander or retaliation. But the Bible commands us to live and dwell in peace with all men as much as it is possible on our heart. We are to be ambassadors for Christ. We are to be peacemakers. We are shod, our feet are, with the preparation of the gospel of peace. But again, this is not peace at any cost. We've been called to live a holy life and we cannot compromise on truth and have a fake peace. We must never do that. We must contend for the truth and not be contentious about the truth. The blessing of the peacemaker is said here to be that they will be called a son of God. We do not become sons of God by making peace. We manifest ourselves as peacemakers, as the sons of God. Disciples should reflect peacemaking in their life on a daily basis. Are you? Now, the last beatitude of this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus describes the inner attitudes of the believer, is in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I find it very interesting and noteworthy that persecution comes on the heels of peacemaking. Isn't that interesting? If you desire to bring peace and end to conflict between others, you might find yourself in the midst of it. Peace officers often find themselves when they go to domestic problems to be in the midst of the conflict instead of bringing peace. The truth is, no, none of us are, are going out and looking to be persecuted, are we? Unless you've got some kind of mental health problems. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, however, chapter 3 and verse 12. If you've never heard this, if you've never underscored this in your Bible, if you've never highlighted, do it now. This is something you should know and understand. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Listen now, if you want to live the deeper Christian life, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you will be persecuted. There's no way about it. It's not you might be, you could be, it's you will be persecuted. Why? Why? Because living the life of a disciple makes you the target of the world. The godly attracts trouble like a magnet attracts metal. But there is a caveat to this. That is, the suffering that you experience in this life must be, must be for righteousness' sake. I know a lot of Christians who complain about the suffering they go through when it's their own fault. That doesn't count. There's a lot of annoying believers, aren't there? If you've ever been a a leader in the church, you know this is true. People bring troubles on themselves, and then they want to say that I'm suffering for Jesus when they're really suffering for their own behavior. The truth is, any suffering that will be rewarded by God must be suffering that's done for righteousness' sake. And if it is, the promise is that you will receive the kingdom of heaven. Again, the kingdom of God. What does that mean? The disciple who suffers in this life for Jesus Christ will be present in the millennial kingdom and he will be given special place in the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest blessing of all is probably to be in the kingdom, yes, but to even be used by the king in his rule over this world will be something that will be wonderful and great. Now, this is so important, this last beatitude, that Jesus uses two more verses to fill it out. To define it, if you will, he says in verse 11: Blessed when people insult you and persecute you falsely and say all kinds of evil against you. Why? Because of me. Has this ever happened to you? You ever been called a Bible basher? A right-wing homophobic fundamentalist? Have you ever been called a racist? I've been called all of these things. You see, if you stand for truth, if you tell people what God said, they're going to dislike you, if not hate you. They will come after you. They will attack you. They will try to hurt you. If you say nothing, that's probably not going to happen. You stand for biblical truth, you will be persecuted. Just as a word of note, It happens in the church. People in the pews will attack you. Your brothers and sisters in Christ will attack you for standing for righteousness. If you take a stand for Jesus Christ about some certain issue that they don't like, they will attack you. Some of the meanest people I've ever met are Christians. But again, the caveat is, you must be speaking and standing for the Lord Jesus Christ. You must be righteous. Jesus says here that if you are persecuted for him, this will either come through physical attack or personal attacks. They'll say things about you or they'll do things to you. Now remember, it must be because you're taking a stand for Christ, not for some other issue. And if this happens to you, in verse 12, we read that we should rejoice and be glad. Not woe is me. Oh, I'm kidding, I'm getting a bad end of the deal again, because I'm a Christian, right? Rejoice and be glad," says, "For your reward in heaven is tiny. Just minuscule? You know, oh, yeah. Happy birthday, happy reward. No, your reward is great, for in the same way they persecuted who? The prophets before you. There it is. Discipleship is far more than an insurance plan against hell. It's a kingdom to be sought. It's rewards to be granted. It's comfort to be received It's adulation from our Lord for doing a good thing. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Not you, bum, get to the end of the line. What do you want to hear? What do you want to experience in this life? It all depends on whether you are a kingdom seeker or a kingdom soaker. Do you think you're in the kingdom already and you can just sit on your butt and do nothing? Oh, I'm sorry. Rear end. If you're a kingdom seeker, go for the reward. Run the race. Seek the prize. Forget about the naysayers. Forget about those who will criticize you, who will call you names. Seek after that which is important. The reward of God. Now, many believers I've met poo-poo this idea of rewards. Oh, 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 Pastor, (laughs) I love Jesus. That's enough. This reward stuff. (laughs) You're off on a a little hobby horse there. Really? Really? Hobby horse? Yeah. Pastor, I just want to get into the kingdom. That'll be enough for me. You know how many times I've heard that? ad nauseum nonsense I want to puke when i hear it that's not what the bible teaches let me prove it to you let me drive that point home from the sermon on the mount jesus speaks about rewards for the disciples again and again and again and again ad nauseum in chapter 5 verse 19 Whoever annuls one of these least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of God. What is your desire? You want to be little or do you want to be great? Do you want to be called a wonderful servant who's welcomed in or do you just want to be the guy who got in at the last moment? Now, verse 46, same chapter. If you love those who love you, what reward is there for you? Do not even tax collectors love their own? We're to love other people. Love is the greatest quality that we can have. We are to love the brotherhood. We are to love each other. You know, we're a family. It's easy to love your own family, isn't it? We're all here today. We love mom, no matter how good or bad she was to us, she's still your mom, right? Now, to be honest with you, if I had to choose a mom, I would not choose my mother. I would choose my mother-in-law. But I still love my mom because DNA she made me, produced me, gave me life. I've been in many churches where there was families interconnected with one another, and they loved each other. That's not the standard. Jesus calls us to love our brothers and sisters, those who we are related to by faith, even more so than our own families, right? Leave behind your mother and father and follow me. If you want to be rewarded, that's the kind of love that you're called to have. In chapter 6 and verse 1, Jesus says, That we must beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. You want no reward? Then let people know how much money you give. How many times you pray. How many times you've led somebody to Christ. About your spiritual practices. Go ahead, tell people how righteous and godly you are and you'll lose every stinking reward that you thought you were going to get. You'll get up and you'll say, I have no stinking rewards up here. They're all gone because I got my reward down there. I've met so many braggadacious believers telling me how good they are and what they do for the church and everything else. Pastor, I give a lot of money to the church. You should know that. Really? Really? Well, I'm glad you just lost all your reward for it, if it's even true. Do not practice your righteousness before men. Otherwise, you lose your rewards. Jesus is not looking for nice guys. God's not going to reward nice guys. God is going to reward faithfulness and godliness. Chapter 6, verse 9. He says, so when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet. Before you, as the hypocrites do at the synagogues and in the streets, that you may be honored by men. Here it is, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full already. Is there rewards in heaven? There better be, because Jesus is threatening you with the loss of them. If there's not, then this is just a bunch of hooey. It's not about the money you give, it's not about the plaques that you have on the walls. It's not about what you've done for Jesus. It's about your faithfulness and quietness in the process. Jesus speaks about prayer. Chapter 6, saying, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Do what you do in private. Don't look for rewards from your brothers and sisters in Christ because your reward will be given from God. Finally, in verse 16 of chapter 7, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face and faces and, and as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, They have their reward in full. Whatever you do for Christ, be quiet about it. You don't have to put it in the newsletter. I led 16 people to the Lord this week. God is using me so greatly. This is nonsense. Jesus said, you've got your reward already. That is gone. A Jew listening to all of this from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount might question him and have asked, have, ask him, am I eligible for the Messiah's kingdom? Am I righteous enough to qualify for entrance into it? And Jesus says you can never reach that standard of righteousness, but you must have a standard higher than that of the Pharisees. And that is by trusting in Christ alone. The Pharisees, they were not poor in spirit. The Pharisees did not mourn. The Pharisees were not hungering and thirsting after righteousness. They had no appetite for it, in fact. The Pharisees were the opposite of true righteousness. True righteousness is showing mercy. It's putting other people before yourselves. It's creating peace within broken relationships. True righteousness is seeking after God and his word. I think it's unfortunate that many of us do not experience that in this life because we're not kingdom seekers. We think we're already in the kingdom and we're kingdom dwellers. My encouragement to you today is seek the Lord as you've never sought him before. Things we should ask for based on this text, you can put up those applications. Ask if these traits really define my life now. Am I I might be a believer, but am I a disciple? Am I pursuing the abundant life? What are the attitudes that I present towards all other people? Are they consistent with what Jesus teaches here? If not, I need to change. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. Help us, Father, to understand these essex these ethics and how they apply to our lives today. Help us to have be attitudes, not do attitudes in our life. Let us serve out of a life of the right thinking, the right attitudes expressed here, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.